the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching the Oscar-winning 2014 satirical comedy drama, Birdman. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Birdman, go away, watch it now, and then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right. On with the show. Way back in episode one of Spoiler, while talking about the film Whiplash, we said this. In future years, mark my words on this, our grandchildren will never forgive us for giving Birdman best picture over this. I'm right, I'm right. Um, I'm, no. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. Okay, damn it, something tells me we're going to have to do Birdman in a, in a later... I'm still, I'm still undecided about Birdman, so that could be interesting. Okay, I think you need to come to my way, Rachel, you're wrong. So, and if there's one thing we've decided over all these episodes of Spoiler, it's a dictatorship, not a democracy. So that's that then. Let's go home. Oh, at least tell us what Roger Ebert thought. The film's full title is Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. I don't believe this. The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance? I know. Me neither. Directed by Alejandro Inoritu, Birdman follows Regan Thompson, played by Michael Keaton, as he attempts to gain Broadway acceptance after a long break in his acting career, which until now has included the much maligned Birdman superhero character. Uh, are you at all afraid that uh, people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed up super? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's why 40 years ago I said no to Birdman at four. Hold the man for! You do have the The supporting cast includes Edward Norton, Naomi Watts, Zach Galifianakis, Andrea Riseborough and Emma Stone, who all play characters that have obvious baggage. But that's mere hand luggage compared to Regan's family-sized suit. Look, I'm trying to do something that's important. This is not important. It's important to me, okay? Maybe not to you or your cynical friends whose only ambition is to go viral. But to me, this is, God, this is my career. In any other year, Keaton would have been a shoe-in for the Oscar. But some posh lad from England put in a stellar performance of Stephen Hawking to steal it away from his mitts. So you're not a great actor. Who cares? You're much more than that. Birdman was still the toast of that year's awards, winning Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Director, and quite significantly, Best Cinematography, as its continuous one-camera feel was one of the film's biggest talking points. Like most critics, Roger Ebert loved it, describing it as a ton of fun, a blast from start to finish. This is the kind of review that turns people into living legends. In fact, you have to dig quite deep. In fact, to the depths of Vanity Fair to find an alternative opinion. Richard Lawson thought it was deceptively simple. And quite bizarrely, he used the word boring. There's nothing in here about structure. Nothing in here about intention. It's just a bunch of crappy opinions backed up by even crappier comparisons. In the real world, beyond critics, it felt like Birdman was a film you either got or didn't. So, did the spoiler team get Birdman or politely decline, insisting they were full?
Later in the show, inspired by a popular fan theory of Birdman, we'll be taking a look at dream sequences. But first, ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats for this evening's performance, where the role of Unexpected will be played by Andy Goulding, Virtue by Rachel Burnett, and Ignorance will be characterised <laughs> by the host. <laughs> So Andy, how about that? How just I mean, how pretentious is a film that has two titles? I must admit, I don't I don't like the the subtitle really, but I think that there's a lot to like here. There there's a lot to like here. I've seen and I've seen this film uh, I think four times now. There's a lot to like, particularly the acting. I think it's a real actor's film, uh, and that's what I most enjoy about it. And I do like the film, but I I think somehow the the writing just seems a little bit off in this film to me it's it's a really tonally weird film there's a strange kind of sourness to the whole thing uh, which I think it can work when it's done right but it's also it's knocked off balance for me by there's a streak of really cheap crudeness as well which starts almost immediately and I think I noticed it probably like the third time through that there's a lot of crudity which just seems like a cheap laugh to me rather than establishing a mood there's some scenes, one in particular, which really wow you the first time you see it, and I think probably contributed to its Oscar win and why it had such an initially ecstatic reaction. But it has seemed to quite quickly fall from critical favour a little bit. When The Independent did that list of, uh, of critics' top 100 of this century so far, Birdman was nowhere to be seen on that. So I think ultimately, after, see, after seeing it four times now, it initially provides a lot of a lot of talking points, a lot to talk about, but each time I see it, it seems that that little bit emptier every time. Well, that's interesting. There's a couple of points I'm going to come back to you on there, but let's hear from Rachel. Rachel, a lot of talk about Michael Keaton in this. I mean, obviously, he's the, he's the star of the show. Is he really all that in this film? Oh, my goodness, yeah, absolutely. I would agree with um, Andy that it's it's an actor's film. It's totally about the acting. Um, it is for me, anyway. Mm-hmm. I just spend so long just going, wow that I'd, I don't know if I pay enough attention to the rest of what's going on, if I'm honest. I'm so blown away, especially by Michael Keaton. But then I'm a huge, huge fan. Always, always have been. And there is something about that man. There is something that is a little bit a little bit like Tom Hardy, as far as it's behind the eyes. Mm-hmm. It's not just the acting, the performance, the bodily movement, everything else. There's something behind the eyes. And Michael Keaton's got that too. And I don't know if it's a little bit of madness or what it is, but it's... <laughs> He's just, I can't take my eyes off him when he's on the screen. And mm-hmm. I just think he's wonderful. And amazingly, the other actors in, in the film absolutely measure up as well. They're, they're as good, which I wasn't expecting. I thought, I'm not sure about this. I mean, I know Zach um, Galifianakis was, I'm going to be good enough in this. But he was fantastic. <laughs> they were all really, really good. Mm. And so for me, as somebody that is into drama and does some acting and things like that myself, to watch people doing the absolute best of that craft is just it's a joy to watch. See, I made a note, and I know what the audience is thinking. Don't never mind what the reviewers think. What's the what's the host opinion? <laughs> <laughs> they, they always, I know, I know. People yeah, always yeah. on the internet. They always want to know. They're always saying, "Oh, please, let's hear more from the host about his opinion <laughs> about what's going on." Now, I mean, when, when going back to episode one when we talked about it, and um, we talked about it in terms of Whiplash, because I said that Whiplash should have got the Oscar that year, and at the same sort of time, I watched Birdman. Um, and I don't know why, but I, is it just me that's put those two films together? Or is it just the, the fact they were going up against each other for an Oscar? Or is it, I don't know, for some They're reason quite, there's this connection in my brain drums. between the two. I'd say it's the drums. Ah, oh, yeah, of course right. it's the drums. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, been, that's why I link them in my head. 
beaten to a rhythm with it. They but were yeah. two of the forerunners for the Oscar yeah, that year as well, weren't they? they? Were. Yeah. And they were, they were both jazzy, probably. On my, on my first watch of this, I'm not going to say hated it, I really didn't like it. And I was expecting that when we when we came to this and when we talked about it again, who brought this up? I think, was it Johnny? Oh, it might have been Johnny. Yeah, yeah. he's not producer, in. yeah, the producer of the programme. I think he, he, Johnny might have been expecting me to go hell for leather on this. I watched it a couple of days back and apart from, apart, and let's, let's, let's get this out of the way, it's too actory. <laughs> I know I know what I mean by that you know what I mean I by do. that as well yeah it's too actory but this time around the second time around which must be a couple of years apart this time I absolutely loved it ah. and isn't that bizarre <laughs> you know you, you know you're right about about Keaton there is there, there is that that thing behind his eyes and mm. of course there's what I find delicious about this now are those comparisons to Batman having recently watched the original Batman back yeah. which is Awful! Don't go back. If you ever thought, yeah. if you ever thought that was any good, keep that in your mind. Okay. Don't go I, back. I actually did watch it recently, and I quite enjoyed it. But then no, I watched, no, you didn't. Then I watched <laughs> Batman Returns, and that was awful. I used to like that quite a lot, and I think there was a time when I thought Batman Returns was the better of the two. But watching it back now, I thought it was awful. And Tim Burton is so obsessed with his villains that I think Michael Keaton as Batman doesn't get much of a look in particularly in the second film. He, he practically, I mean, the first hour, he's practically doing mm. cameos between bits of the Penguin and Catwoman and Max Shrek. Mm. Which is no. a waste of Michael Keaton's time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Waste. Well, I, yes. I feel, because I, I totally agree, I think Michael Keaton's great and I've always liked him, but looking back over his career after watching this, I wonder why I've, I was so taken with him, because for me, I feel like this is one of the first parts he's had that he could really get his teeth into since, like, Beetlejuice. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. I think there's an element of Beetlejuice about this yeah, particular yeah. character. <laughs> but hey, I mean, let's, we'll get to some of, the, some of the cinematography and things in a while because obviously that's a talking point here. Uh, but uh, I think we should, we should talk while we're on the cast and talk about that. What about Emma Stone? What about Emma Stone? She's, she's fantastic. I think, I think she's the best performance in this, actually. She pips Michael Keaton for me to the best performance. I think it's a film that has numerous examples of kind of power shifts between characters and a lot of emotionally volatile characters in it. And I think she taps into that more realistically than anyone. There's this brilliant moment where she's telling Regan off and she, she's sort of she's berating him. And in the middle of it, she sort of really briefly does this kind of half sympathetic smile when she's talking about some of his, his lesser character traits. And you really feel in that that she's tapped into the feelings rather than just thinking, how will this character be reacting? So most people would have just played that looking angry all the way through it. But you can see she gets these certain points and she hits on a, one of her father's weaknesses and it almost brings out this kind of caring kind of side of her because she she wants she doesn't want to be telling this and she she feels kind of... She feels emotional towards him because of this. And that comes out. I don't know if she thought I'm going to do this, but it feels like it just came out naturally in the speech. And that moment was the first time I really thought, yeah, she's she's really nailed it. Yeah, she really lives it, doesn't she? Mm. And those eyes of hers, which she I mean, in La La Land, those eyes are used a lot and there's so much expression in them. Yeah, that's the you're not important speech, I think, mm. isn't it? Which really struck me. It yeah. was like, wow, she's just this tirade. But you're right, there, it wasn't this completely two-dimensional, I'm really angry with you. There was so much in there, so many different things of that confliction of, I'm really angry with you, but I love you because you're my dad and yeah. I feel sorry for you, but I'm really angry with you. And, and she managed to get all of that through in, what, two-minute speech? Yeah. I mean, the camera is very 
it's very unforgiving. It's right in their faces all the time. So you do have to almost be feeling it rather than thinking about your lines, because if you're thinking about your lines, your eyes will be giving you away a mm. little bit. And that just didn't come through with her at all. It was all emotion. It was all completely real. I don't know if she's a method actor or how she, what her what her way is, but if she's not, then she's just sensational. Yeah, but when we uh, we talk about characters, sometimes we like to look at other actors that were that were up for the role. Margot Robbie, could you have imagined mm. Margot Robbie <laughs> playing that role? Absolutely not. But she turned it down to appear in Focus. Have you heard of Focus? What? No, I, think no idea. I think it's a Will Smith action movie. Don't hold oh, yeah. Um, Lily James, Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones. Uh, they were talked about it as well. And Blake Lively, but you know, no. You know, no, no one else. There's absolutely, there's no one else for that part, is there? She is one of those actors. Where as soon as she's done a part, you can never imagine anyone else yeah. even touching it. You know, she is going to be one of these actors. She was going to be around for a long time. Absolutely. Plus, she contributes to that. I think there's that that great thing that most of the leads in this have appeared in some kind of superhero film, haven't they? Yeah. Like she was in Spider-Man, yeah. uh, Michael Keaton in the Batman's, uh, Ed Norton, the Incredible Hulk, and Naomi Watts even, I think, was in Tank Girl. Yeah, she was. She was <laughs> Jet Girl. Yeah. Mm. Ed Norton. Ed Norton apparently is quite difficult to work with. Would you have I, See, I wouldn't have said that by looking at him. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to tell, though, because he, I think he's i think he's really... He's sometimes, he's sometimes quite an overlooked actor. I think he's got a real range, so it's difficult looking at him in film to film to tell who he is in real life. I think he, he, he's really good. He can convince as the Hulk or, like, a, a neo-Nazi, and then he can equally play, like, a, a sweet-natured scoutmaster in Moonrise yeah. Kingdom, and... Completely different, but but so effective in both the roles. Yeah, I think he's really underrated as well. And I must admit, those first few minutes watching Birdman the second time round, I remember going to cinema and seeing it and absolutely loving it. And I started watching the DVD and thinking, why did I love this? And then Edward Norton comes on on the stage and they're having that that yeah. sort of dialogue. I just thought this is why I love it, <laughs> and he's just so great. I just absolutely love Edward Norton. I can watch him till the cows come home. He's just fantastic. But apparently, this the role. And he admits this, it is a riff on him. Mm. It's apparently how he is in real life and how he is as, as an actor, which I thought was quite sweet of him to actually riff on your own personality. Well, you can't be, if if you can play it that well, you can't be exactly like that. No. A lot of people can remember like when The Office came out and everyone said, oh, Ricky Gervais does it because he just is Brent. And I thought, well, no, he's not because you can't play something that well if you're, if you're as unself-aware as, as that kind of character. And so, I mean, it's probably elements of Ed Norton blown up. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, maybe so, but uh, next time I get offered a role uh, with Ed Norton, I'm, I'm going to think twice about it. <laughs> Speak to my agent up the fee, maybe. <laughs> uh, but the, when you talk about the, the, the scenes on the stage, uh, you know, we'll we get to some more of the scenes in a while, but the, the scenes on the stage particularly... I, I felt nervous yeah. while they're doing these previews. While you're on the stage and the camera's following uh, Michael Keaton's character Regan on, onto the stage, and it's a, there's a preview audience all of a sudden. They're right in front of you. The lights are on you, and you're like, oh, oh, it's like this fruity now. And I'm, I'm, I was sat there trying to remember lines. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of like a nightmare, isn't it? It's like you know when yeah, you, when yeah. you, end, you know when I've you end up somewhere one. and you know you, I just quite a lot where I pretend I'm in bands or not pretend. I like I appear. I always the bass player because you know bass players <laughs> are the coolest, and. I, I, I'm there and I'm going, I, I don't know. I don't know, the, I don't know the thing. And the audience is always going wild, obviously. It's a dream. And, you know, it's a, that's where I was watching this. One thing that really uh, really impresses me is 
actors acting acting yeah <laughs> uh, and in especially in this light because like ed norton is supposed to be the great actor so michael keaton has to act acting as if he's he's good but he's not as good as him and it's it's really difficult to do to act like you you pretend to act the best example i've seen of this is a, a cracking little indie film called living in oblivion and uh, Catherine Keener does a scene at the beginning of it where she's an actress who keeps doing a scene and they do it over and over again and something keeps going wrong and she starts out quite well and then she gets a little bit better and then as they repeat it, she starts to lose it as she has to repeat this scene. And can you imagine trying to act the same same scene as if you're getting, your acting's changing each time you do it? It's, yeah. It's really, really hard to do. It's incredibly impressive. I think actors get they don't they don't get the plaudits they deserve. I mean, they do. They get Oscars, but you know, but that's very few and far between. Bucket loads of money. Yeah, but that's very few and far between. They're the very top people. But acting is a really, really difficult thing to do. You know, it's not just remembering all your lines and performing them correctly. You've got to be in the right places, and especially this film. I watched a documentary that was on my DVD. I had no idea that they had to rehearse it like a stage play because it was in a theatre as well. So not only were they having to remember minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes of lines because there was going to be no chopping and changing. There was no sort of mistakes allowed to happen because this poor cameraman with his little steady cam was going to have to go around this corner, around that corner, around here, down these stairs, don't fall down, um, and make sure that you punctuate that and hit that mark and make sure that when you go around that corner, make sure you're not going to be in the way when the camera spins around. So all these things are in your head and you're trying to actually maintain your character, maintain your lines, watch where you're going, make sure you hit that mark at two minutes and 30 seconds. It's impressive. It's really impressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I read something up on it where at the end of someone's very long speech on the stage and Emma Stone had to walk off. If she didn't walk off in time, which she didn't always, they had to redo the whole thing just because of the continuous take. Uh, But we'll get back to some of the more cinematography uh, in just a little while. Now, later, Andy's going to be taking a look at the use of the it was all a dream twist in movies. And we'll be talking more about Birdman. That's all after this short break. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you'd like to help us make more, you can do so by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selection of audiobooks, including Most the Fireman by Eric Metaxas, read by Michael Keaton. You can cancel your membership at any time within the 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up via our link, which will help producer Johnny find himself spiritually. Now, back to the show. You know, what has to happen in a person's life for them to become a critic anyway? Welcome back to Spoiler, where we're talking about Birdman. And we'll be talking about the whole of it, and we'll certainly be talking about the end of it. Uh, Now, one popular fan theory about Birdman is that some or all of the movie is actually an extended dream sequence. Andy's been taking a look at this and some other great and not-so-great screen scenarios where it all turned out to be just a dream. Dream, dream, dream. Recurring concept among the many interpretations of Birdman 
is that a portion, or the entirety of the film, is actually the dream of a dying man. To some, the neat resolution of Riggins hopes and dreams in the final hospital scene seemed too good to be true, indicating that he died from the self-inflicted gunshot wound on stage, while others have suggested that brief flashes of a jellyfish image indicate that Riggin died from drowning during his earlier suicide attempt in Malibu, and the whole film is a metaphor for his last-ditch attempts to reconcile his artistic ambitions with his actual career. The it-was-all-a-dream trope is a risky gambit for writers, as if used improperly it feels particularly cheap and can leave an audience feeling cheated for having invested themselves emotionally in something which is revealed to have no substance whatsoever. Then again, if used openly rather than stored up as a climactic surprise, the incorporation of dreams can add fascinating new layers to a story. We've already seen how effective this can be in our previous episode on David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Due to the mixed reactions dream sequences provoke, they're often deployed as brief moments of showy misdirection, rather than all-encompassing twists. It's a tactic commonly used in horror cinema, such as the infamous final moment of Brian De Palma's Carrie, in which a blooded hand reaches out of a grave to grab a horrified mourner. Well, several classic films have successfully used dreams as a rug-pulling full stop, such as The Wizard of Oz's famous finale, in which Dorothy's technical adventure in Oz is revealed to be a delusional imagining, populated by lookalikes from a monochrome Kansas farmhouse. Wake up, honey. In these contexts, the trick works, since it was clearly an intended element of the narrative from the moment of inception, and therefore fits neatly into the storyline that was always geared towards the revelation. It is series television that struggles most to make the it-was-all-the-dream approach work. It occasionally works as a one-off, a single episode revealed to have taken place inside the head of one character. But attempts to write off entire series, or large chunks of them as mere figments, is a riskier move, which often seems ludicrous and leaves dedicated fans feeling bewildered and betrayed. the most infamous example of this was season 9 of US soap Dallas, latterly referred to as the dream season. Not because it was the best season, but because the entire 31 episode run was subsequently annulled as the slumbered imaginings of Pamela Ewing. In a bizarre turn of events, Bobby Ewing, one of the owners of Ewing Oil Company, has been rushed to Dallas Memorial Hospital. The dream season concept was not so much a bold stylistic move as a desperate attempt to rectify the commercially disastrous decision to kill off Patrick Duffy's heartthrob character Bobby Ewing at the end of season eight. I love you so much. With ratings dipping drastically, Duffy was lured back to the series and season nine ended with his character inexplicably reappearing in his shower in a famous and widely parodied scene. Viewers were encouraged not to question whether a dream could really be that long, detailed and filled with subplots that didn't even directly involve the dreamer herself. As far as the Dallas crew were concerned, season 9 never happened. What a waste of 31 hours. A 
Another entire season of TV written off as imaginary was the bizarre final run of Roseanne. This hugely popular sitcom had always been praised for its realism and focus on a struggling working class family, the Connors. The bedrock of the show's popularity was the fiery but solid and loving central relationship between Roseanne and her husband Dan, played by the always superb John Goodman. However, in Roseanne's final season, Dan suddenly began an affair with another woman, something that didn't seem to fit with the character's established history. But if this was the most upsetting plotline of the season, it certainly wasn't the weirdest. Dan, Dan, I have something to tell you, but before I tell you, you have to promise me that you are not going to collapse or turn blue or anything like that. Scout's honor. Okay. We the water Abandoning its groundbreaking focus on real-life financial struggles, Roseanne Season 9 began with the Connors winning the lottery, broadening the range of possible plotlines considerably. The writers didn't hold back, layering on the strangeness with multiple location changes, big-name guest stars and outlandish occurrences. In one episode, the notorious Rosambo, Roseanne even battles terrorists alongside Steven Seagal in order to save the family of Hillary Clinton. So, why the sudden change? One frequently floated theory is that Roseanne had incorporated elements of her proposed American remake of UK sitcom Absolutely Fabulous into her own show when she had been unable to get the project commissioned. This theory is backed up by the fact that Jennifer Saunders and Joanna Lumley guest starred as their abfab characters Adina and Patsy in the episode Satan, Darling. I'm going to change your image for you. I'm going to change your image for you. I don't want my image to be changed. Oh, with your image changed. Get this one another drink. I'm going to make you the next... Heavy belly, illy billy. <laughs> fat is back, I can see it now. You're gonna be too fat or too rich. Go for it, Eddie! With <laughs> critics and fans balking at the series' new direction, Roseanne pulled one last rabbit out of the hat when the series finale, Into That Good Night, ended with a melancholy monologue in which Roseanne explained the previous season in significant detail from the seasons preceding it were the results of scripts she'd created in her character's new career as a writer. Among the controversial changes she made, including transferring her sister Jackie's lesbianism to her mother instead because Roseanne had always pictured her with a man, the one that most upset long-term viewers was the revelation that husband Dan died of the heart attack he had at the end of season 8, and writing his affair had been Roseanne's odd way of coping with the loneliness she felt in the aftermath. My writing's really what got me through the last year after Dan died. I, I mean, at first I felt so betrayed as if he had left me for another woman. When you're a blue-collar woman and your husband dies, it takes away your whole sense of security. So I began writing about having all the money in the world. And I imagined myself going to spas and swanky New York parties, just like the people on TV, where nobody has any real problems and everything's solved within 30 minutes. While other sitcoms, including The British Empire and Newhart, have been revealed as dreams in their final episodes, none played it quite so devastatingly as Roseanne. And while the finale was effectively melancholy, it also felt too extreme, dissolving from the warm family atmosphere that characterised the series to a downbeat final shot of its main character sitting alone in an empty house, a famous raucous laugh echoing mockingly over Fade to Black. It may have been devised as a response to a ludicrous preceding season, but the finale managed to taint the whole nine-year run in the process. <laughs> if some all-the-dream endings have cast a strange shadow over their parent series, one infamous series finale managed to change the way viewers looked at 90% of the viewing schedule. 
medical drama, St. Elsewhere, was famous for its quirky, blackly comic approach. So when the series drew to a close, viewers expected something a little different, and they sure as hell got it, when the entire 137 episode series was revealed to be inside the head of minor character Tommy Westfall, the autistic son of Director of Medicine Donald Westfall. In this reality, Donald was revealed to be a construction worker, recast as a high-ranking medic in his son's daydreams, which were inspired by a small snow globe containing a model of St. Elegius Hospital on which he fixates. I don't understand this autism thing, Pop. Here's my son. I talk to him. I don't even know if he can hear me. He sits there all day long in his own world, staring at that toy. At first, this silly finale was roundly panned as an empty flourish and a cheap last-minute addition to six years of quality drama. But it stuck in people's minds, and in 2002, writer Dwayne McDuffie's article, Six Degrees of St Elsewhere, sparked an online game which ended up positing the theory that an enormous amount of the TV series we know and love are going on inside the head of Tommy Westfall. Here's how the theory of the Tommy Westfall universe works. The entirety of Senate Elsewhere took place inside Tommy's mind. We know this from the final scene of the series. However, the character of hospital orderly Warren Coolidge was actually a carryover from a previous CBS show, The White Shadow, confirmed by the fact he was played by the same actor and often referred to the former series in his Senate Elsewhere dialogue. Therefore, the assumption can be made that the entirety of The White Shadow's 54 episodes and all its characters are also the creation of Tommy Westfall's mind. But wait, there's more. Crossover episodes were not an uncommon occurrence in 1980s television, and in one episode of St Elsewhere, the Doctors pay an after-work visit to Cheers, the Boston bar from the long-running sitcom, where they converse with the characters Carla, Norman, Cliff. Nice bar you have here. With me, any bar where people don't spit on the floor is nice, but thanks. My name is Carla. Hi, Donald. Yeah. Suddenly then, 270 episodes of Cheers also become a product of Tommy's overactive brain. But why stop there? Remember, Cheers had several spin-off shows, including the highly successful Frasier, took up another 264 half-hours for Tommy. But damn it if the lead character from the John Larroquette show didn't pay a fleeting visit to the Seattle psychiatrist. Not the characters themselves have to cross over to be attributed to Tommy's creative instincts. The John Larroquette show Central Bus Station was constructed by the fictional company Yo-Yo Dine, who, as indicated by numerous dedication plaques and control panels, also manufactured parts of the Federation starships in Star Trek. With this small detail, the Tommy Westfall universe goes intergalactic, incorporating all sorts of sci-fi worlds under one umbrella, from further generations of Star Trek to Red Dwarf, Doctor Who and Firefly. Even utilising some self-imposed rules created to prevent things getting out of hand, including exclusion of feature films and cartoons, the Tommy Westfall universe continues to grow, with one dedicated website listing a total of 419 shows that can be traced to Tommy's cerebellum. Of course, it's easy to refute the theory, after all, it's entirely possible that Tommy populated his fictional world with characters from his favourite TV shows, immediately severing their connection as interconnected realities. And within the delicate structure of the Westfall universe, one broken link can take out hundreds of subsequent links. Philosophy professor Brian Weatherson wrote an article highlighting six objections to the Tommy Westfall hypothesis, in which one of his most cogent points states that former New York mayor Michael Bloomberg also portrayed himself in the show Law and Order which falls within the Westfall sphere. By Weatherson's reckoning, 
This proves that not everyone in these connected shows is one of Tommy's inventions. But there is another possibility. Perhaps Bloomberg's presence within this fictional world means that real life itself is the creation of Tommy Westfall. Maybe we're all existing within the confines of that cramped little snow globe. And that being the case, Weatherson and his article are actually the creation of... No, sorry, this feature's long enough already. I'm not even going to touch that. Thanks for that. And so dream sequences, I mean, you're right. When they work, they work. And when they don't, they don't. But what I'm going to pick out of that is, thanks for the Roseanne reference. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when Roseanne was out, I was so in love with Darlene. A huge crush on Darlene. <laughs> and also, also, I taped the intro. You know that saxophone sequence? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I taped that using my ZX Spectrum tape recorder in front of the TV, telling everyone, shush, shush, quiet. Anyway, but yeah, thanks for for those memories. They're talking about bringing it back, aren't they? With the way they ended it, I don't know how they're going to do that. What, the same people? Yeah, yeah, same cast. I can't, you know, it's the first I've heard of that, and I don't know how I feel about Mm. it. No, I'm not keen on that. No, me neither. Some things should just stay where they are. I tell you what, here's here's what they should do. They should make a pilot. Let us review it for spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll yeah. tell them if it's read or not. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. Just after we've done our Cheers special. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, so we are talking about Birdman, believe we it or are. not, aren't we? Yeah, blimey. As if, I mean, there's not enough to talk about with Birdman, is there? <laughs> what we need is a huge Roseanne sidetrack on the... Oh, man alive, honestly. Someone sack this host. Um, right, okay, so Lindsay Duncan, discuss. <laughs> is, I mean, she's just... Perfect, isn't she? In this in this role as the as, as the theatre critic, there's only one person could have played it better, and that would have been me. But <laughs> yeah. she was just absolutely oh man! When she said she was going to kill it, you knew she yeah. would. Yeah, you knew she would. She's great. I love her. She's fabulous. There isn't a single person that dropped the ball on this as regards acting. Not no, a I single person. And she was well up there, and she stole that scene. You thought, oh, you little. Mm. <laughs> you know, she knew she was killing him. Really. Because yeah. no, this man was desperate, and she just listened and went, "Yeah, I'm gonna kill your play." So, what, I mean, one thing when when this came out, everyone was talking about, and we, we touched on it really. With the, we were talking about just before the break, there is, is the, the way the camera moved and the cinematography and how that goes. How how important is that 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 stylation to this? Could it could it have worked? You know, with mul- multiple cameras, could it could it have been different done differently? I think it probably could. It's it's very painstaking, and it was definitely worth it in terms of that style works really well. It does make it really striking. But I have a feeling that they... I mean, they said they, the screenplay took ages because they had to painstakingly write it and think about how each scene flowed into each other and uh, people hitting their marks and that. So I think when the writing and directing becomes that technical, sometimes films can lose a little on emotional terms. And this is where... This is where it falls down for me. I think the writing is a, is a little bit off. The actors do brilliantly at bringing out the characters, but I think it's quite thinly written. You're right. I mean, it has to be very tight, and there's no room for anyone to go slightly off the lines and try something that feels more real to them, which, I mean, we've done loads of different films, and we've always talked about how there's always been improvisation. Always people have thrown in a line, like Gladiator's full of it, and 
And there was no chance of that here at all. And so the screenplay really is like, that is just one person's, well, it's probably two or three people, screenwriters. But that was the only people writing. And that's unusual for a film. Normally, lots of people have input in the things that people are saying. And so I think you don't have as many voices, not as many separate and distinct voices. And I think that's probably where, for me as well, actually, it probably falls down a little bit, is on that. Mm. Is that there's quite a few people that sound almost the same. That, you, yeah. know, you could probably s- switch one person's speech into another person's mouth and it wouldn't seem out of place. Yeah, and it, it shouldn't really be the case, should it? This is what I felt about the, the sort of the crudeness. There's, I mean, mm. I've written down a lot of the crude lines, but I'm not going to say them because they're quite... But there, there's just... There, well, there's one, there's one in particular. It's, uh, it's right near the beginning. It's when Naomi Watts is talking about Ed Norton's character and they say to her, uh, how do you know him? And she says, we share a vagina. Mm. And I thought that is that's a it's a really bad line, yeah. and it doesn't sound like it would come from her. It sounds like them going. What, wouldn't say that. What's mm. what's going to be funny? A cheap, crude laugh, and that even like the first time I watched it, I thought mm. that's a that's an awful line. And yeah, it kind of took me out of it straight away. Yeah, I, I must to, admit that one was one that jarred me out as yeah. well. And I thought, oh, I don't think a, a woman wouldn't say that. If she'd had any kind of say in her own dialogue and her own character, she probably would have said. I don't want to say that. Mm. Well, it comes, it comes not long, like almost immediately you get uh, the, the Birdman voiceover that says the room smells like bulls. Mm. And it's, it's, I mean, the first time I watched it, I, I laughed at that and thought it was quite funny. But now, like when I watch it now, Im- that immediately sets the tone for me. And there's, there's a lot of bits like that in it. And I, I'm, not, I'm not against a bit of crudity and a cheap laugh. And, but here it seems really off. It doesn't quite work with it, I don't think. So my my case of it being too actory, right, I don't actually genuinely think actors are like that, but is the stereotypical perception, certainly of actresses, quite wrongly and, and, and uh, stereotypically, of that kind of that kind of loose-mouthed behaviour? Because, I mean, further on, Naomi Watts is saying, why don't I have any self-respect? And Andrea Riseborough's character says, you're an actress, honey. Mm. You know, and it is... It, thank you. And, it, <laughs> and it's, it is putting that, that label and that stereotype on it. And I don't... Which, I, I don't know. Does it exist? I don't know. We don't know. None of us are actresses, are they? Mm. Oh, no. I think also there's a difference between theatre actresses and film actresses as well. I think there is a difference. Especially theatre is, is so much more... I mean, you're not paid a lot in theatre at all. But I, I don't know. I mean, we're not in that field, and so it's difficult to, to judge. But again, Yet. I don't. We're I, not in that field. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yet. Aspirations. Um, but yeah, I, I, again, I didn't think that was something that a woman would say to a woman that was upset. Mm. I don't know. It, it, I just think a little bit more, you know, fluidity around you can, you know, grow your character yourself. And if you think your character would say this, let it come. You yeah. Know? But it did feel, uh, I agree with you, that the dialogue was just like. As much as like you need to hit this mark and that mark and make sure you're in this hallway, make sure you say this word at this time with this nuance. And it's like, well, that's just too prescriptive. Mm. I mean, the actors are so good that they pulled it off. But you're right that that dialogue itself, the actual things they're saying are a bit really. Yeah. You know. Okay, so let's not leave this as an aftermark. Uh, the soundtrack. <laughs> mm. uh, again, you know, one of the quite significant, as well as the, the, the camera movements and things, one of the quite significant things here is the drummer. Now, there's a point in the, in the drumming where we walk past the drummer, who's drumming. Yes. And sometimes he's out on the street, sometimes he's in the theatre itself. At one point, Michael Keaton tips him, doesn't he? Throws him some money. Should he have kicked his drum set over at that point? <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I was really annoyed by the drums for the first few minutes. I was like, oh, for heaven's sake. Because it was making me feel really uncomfortable, but I think that's kind of the point. 
because I'm really affected by drumming. I get my heart starts to try and get in sync with it, or something weird happens, and I, it can get me into a panic quite quickly. So I was like, I need this to stop now because it's been going on for too long. But actually, as it goes on, I get kind of used to it. And when it comes in again, I'm like, okay, we're moving again, we're moving again. And so it was sort of pulling me along a bit. Reviewers worse than us <laughs> have said have said that it goes on all the way through, and it doesn't. No, it, it doesn't, doesn't at all. No, it doesn't. And it's quite significant when it does come in. I think. Yeah, I, no, I, it I is. quite I quite like the drumming. Yeah. I'm not sure I like seeing the drummer though. That's that feels like a, a bit of a flourish that I'm I'm not quite sure. It feels like that breaking like, the fourth wall. Though. Yeah, yeah, and it's it it reminds me of like kind of old jokes as a as a bit in bananas by Wood, Woody Allen where he receives a a letter in the post which is an invitation to have dinner with the president and he sits down in his bed and he goes dinner with the president and he lays back in his bed and you hear this harp like he's going to sleep and then he just looks confused and he gets up and he opens his cupboard and there's a harpist <laughs> in the cupboard playing it and I, I immediately thought of that it felt mm. like I, I don't know why why do you think the drummer's there why do we why do we see him I don't know that's a really good point I don't know but then it's that magic realism again isn't yeah it? exactly this is the point I was about so. to make here is that is he really there mm. is mm. he really there because this is the, the, the he's conspicuous by his absence because we haven't talked about him yet Birdman well, yeah. Is he really there? Good point, yeah. He's not really there. And this is obviously, you know, we're, we're dealing with an obvious mental health issue here, mm. you know, and... Uh, um, or are we? It's, it's left quite open, isn't it? Yeah. Whether it's Whether it's a mental health issue, whether it's a dream... Yeah, I think it's left open, and I think it, it's better left open as well. Mm. There's a lot of, of people online who... who, who well, they think they know everything. Yeah, they and they write, they write, they say, oh... I can't believe people haven't worked this out yet. And then they write up their, their perfectly good explanation of it. But you think, yeah, but don't... You're an idiot for trying to tie it down to that one mm. thing. Yeah, it's, it's ambiguous. It could be anything. Now, one of my favourite bits of trivia... and I, I, we, We're dotting about a bit here, but this has got to be got in here. <laughs> it's terrible English, but it's got to be got in. <laughs> favourite bit of trivia from IMDb, which you know I love, is Regan is falsely told that Martin Scorsese is in the audience. In fact, he is. Scorsese <laughs> can be seen when Regan is walking to the stage in his underwear after the walk through <laughs> Times Square. Fab. Or as Zach Galifianakis says, Martin Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, but I mean, really, I mean, he, he should have got the Oscar. I mean, it's a tough year this, this, this year for the... Just for the way he walked in his underwear, in that <laughs> awkward kind of way, he just walked through that, 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 was it, where, where is it, is it Times Square? Yeah, it's Times Square, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, Broadway. And yeah, just, it was just peculiar and awkward and brilliant. I mean, yeah. and I mean, I mean brilliant as well. I'm not just saying the word brilliant for the sake of it. I actually mean it in its proper context there. Yeah. I like that that's in there. It was, when I first saw it, I did think, oh, really, we're going to do the whole getting locked yeah. out with yeah. you. But it, it, I think it works in there really well. It reminds me of uh, another thing that uh, Lindsay Duncan was in, uh, GBH, Alan Bleasdale's GBH, which was a, a brilliant series uh, from the early 90s starring Robert Lindsay as Michael Murray, this uh, underhand Labour politician and it was like and most of the time it was very serious but then suddenly in I think it's in episode four there's this really extended comedy routine where he develops a twitchy hand and he walks around this hotel just flailing his hand in the air <laughs> and uh, it's really it, it, the way it's it's it offsets the drama with just the broadest comedy it's a really big gamble to do that and I think Birdman does it a little bit and it works best in this scene where he, he gets locked out. And then that feeds into then that those uh, 
those themes of internet fame versus uh, versus stage and screen fame really well. And I love that little scene of uh, Emma Stone and Michael Keaton talking about it. And that's, that's one of the scenes where the emotion does come out for me and I feel that connection more than in, than in most of the rest of the film. Mm. But he's been upstaged by Baldry because uh, I listened to the Richard Herring Leicester Square Theatre podcast, Rahul Lester Puh, Rahul Lester Puh. <laughs> And Tony Robinson told him a story that happened right here in Lincoln, that, he, that while they were doing the Who Dares Wins tour, uh, Tony Robinson got locked outside the back door, the stage door, completely naked <laughs> he was good, you know the, the, the idea was he was going to go on on stage naked but you know obviously just show a little bit of where anyway he had to run right around the theater <laughs> around the theater into what is well what is now a weatherspoons uh, but right through the the, the, the the theater the entrance then right through the audience up onto the stage which of course i mean it made it hilarious and funny um but completely naked i mean you know if, if you've got any interest in hearing about tony robinson on that was brilliant go back listen to his stories i haven't got his autobiography yet but you really must anyway Who's taken us off subject again? <laughs> now, when the Birdman appears in the street, there are explosions. I'd missed explosions. <laughs> <laughs> it, it totally changes, doesn't it? And all of a sudden there's that big bird creature, that um, like mm. pterodactyl yeah. dragon-y yeah. thing. And that's, it is used yeah. brilliantly, that, because yeah. it, there is such a contrast in it. Yeah, is, yeah. It, is, it is really, really good. Uh, so, as, the, as is the point of spoiler, let's, let's spoil the ending. And... Let's go, let's go from the point where he's got the gun on the stage. At that point there, did you think he was going to shoot himself and that would be it? And I, I was, at that point, I thought, actually, and oh, I, I don't know, this sounds crude, but a bit of brains over the first few rows might have been... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know what this says about me. <laughs> while, while, while I'm saying this, I was saying this out loud. I'm thinking. I thought that. No, that sounded good in your head, Paul. Uh, but yeah, I thought that that was going to be the ending when when yeah. When, yeah. when I saw it. But then it, it sort of carried on. He hit his nose. Yes. Leading to the brilliant line. <laughs> He's got a new nose. If he doesn't like that one, we'll get him a new one. <laughs> I thought that was really clever. That it totally led up to. Oh, that's it. He's going to kill himself, and that'll be the end of the film. Mm-hmm. And. And then, you know, then he's in hospital and you think, oh, we probably just like, you know, yep. just missed his brain a bit or something. And, and he's just shot his nose off. And it's just, oh, he can't, oh, bless him. Mm. He can't even kill himself. <laughs> I know, I know. And, um, did you like that they wrong footed you? I don't, or, well, I know, actually, did they wrong foot you? And if yes, so, they did. did. Like yes, they did wrong yeah. foot me. I'm trying to remember because obviously it's the second time I watched it. Okay. But um, yes, they did wrong foot me. I didn't expect him to have shot his nose off. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, but I, I kind of liked that. I thought that was because then, and especially his his white um, bandages made him look like a bit of a bird. Yeah, as well. Yeah, but also um, it makes him look like the Phantom of the yeah. Opera. And you see, that's something that I didn't spot the first time out. But you see those Phantom of the Opera posters with the big mask mm. all the way through it, don't you? Yeah. So it's it's a bit of a, a twofer. Yeah, I like. And that. I liked the ending right up to the bit where you saw him in the bandages. I don't like where it goes after that so much. Were you thinking like I was, under no circumstances would they leave a patient who was attempted suicide <laughs> in a room with a window that can open? I was, yeah. But yeah, I, I think a lot of people made that point. But I think we're definitely in magical realism territory again at this yes. point, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the point. But also, do windows like that exist that high up on any building? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, and, and the strange bit when he took his bandage off mm. and his nose is so weird, and I was like, oh, that's really weird. And then we see Birdman on the toilet. Yeah. What do you think of that? I didn't like that. Mm. I don't Did you not like it because it creeped you out? Because it creeped me out. Well, yes, it creeped me out, but mm-hmm. I also didn't like right, it because it was too, I, I don't know, it just wasn't, 
It wasn't necessary. I liked him more when he was the voice, mm. to be honest. I didn't really like... I liked him appearing when he's on the street. I yeah. Said, that was kind of okay. Because it got bigger and it's this big epic thing. But I think... It's not somebody who sits on the loo. (laughs) That's not right. I think it's supposed to bring him down to that level again, isn't it? I wasn't keen. Yeah, I I, I really like how the magical realism is used in that earlier scene. And I think that big scene probably played a big part in winning the Best Picture Oscar. But then this hospital scene at the end, I just don't, don't really like. No, but the end of the end. I'm sorry to to, to jump back here, but I I, I want, really wanted to get this across. Um, is that the end of that sort of big magical fantasy scene? Is the taxi driver? And this is something I didn't notice first time around. Is the taxi driver coming in saying he wanted the money paying, and it just pulled up? So he obviously wasn't flying. No, he got a taxi. He was mm. very very drunk. That's true. Yeah. So it's so it's not. It's de- it's definitely some kind of dream sequence or yeah. or something mm. like yeah. that. Yeah. 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 But then obviously at the end you've got. Emma Stone's character, Sam. Mm-hmm. She's not looking down at the floor at her smushed father. No. She's looking up and smiling. So whose dream are we in now? Yeah, the fact that she's a part of it at yeah, all is... exactly. Because he's not in it, and that's strange not to be in your own dream. And um, he's been in his dream sequence the rest of the time, and now he's not there. But is he is he thinking that's what his daughter would do? Or is she thinking yeah. that? Or... I, I did think Ugh. the kind of very tender way she is with him in that mm-hmm. scene maybe makes you think it's it's his... Yeah. fantasy a little bit it, it does seem like they could get to that stage but not yet no it was a bit sort of wishful thinking wasn't mm. it this sort of yeah stroking her hair and you know that was really lovely it was really tender and but yeah I'm going to say I don't know what happened there I'm going to stick to it I think that's, <laughs> nor yeah. do I I think we're not meant to are we <laughs> no, no 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 ex- ex- exactly but um, for, why, why do I not like it this time how would you like to fit liked it to have ended I really don't know because I don't think I would have liked the, the brains on the audience <laughs> ending either come on that's, that's a bloodthirsty that's how, how Tarantino <laughs> might have ended it but. Yeah. or Martin Scorsese <laughs> maybe over Lindsay Duncan who actually had walked out at that point hadn't she you know at the, at the gun show she was the first to walk now out now that's interesting because she looks annoyed doesn't she when she walks out but then she apparently posts this incredible review of it mm. so is that another sign that it's Dream. It's a dream, or is are we supposed to think that she's annoyed because she's been proven wrong and she now has to write this? It's all it's all out there for us mm-hmm. to to talk about. So you see, I like that we can talk about it like this, and I, I just didn't like the whole jumping out the window and the looking up ending. Yeah, maybe if she hadn't have come back in, if she just stayed in in the hospital room going, and then just sort of ended it there, like did he fall or did he? I don't think the does whole it, window does, thing. I don't, I don't, I don't just know. Just forget the whole window thing. Yeah, but then you can't just end it with Birdman on the toilet. That's <laughs> it's terrible. very true. Where'd you draw the line? <laughs> I, I do feel an alternative ending YouTube video coming, <laughs> which leads us quite wonderfully to our rating. More than you know, um, <laughs> is it Birdman or is it Bird Bobman? <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. While they while they. <laughs> I don't know what these people are doing. Um, is this is this a dream? Is this reality? Well, they <laughs> what's going on? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it, it's it is Birdman because I, obviously I keep coming back to it. I like it enough to I've got some problems. There's a bit of Bird Bob mixed in, but, <laughs> but ultimately it's Birdman. Yeah, and it's still Birdman for me. I'm not gonna watch it a third time, and then it'll <laughs> never get any sort of Bob on it. I was thinking of giving up those ratings. Um, <laughs> No, I've done such, I mean, such a U-turn on this. So I, I can't even believe myself. And I know 
the U-turns I'm capable of. <laughs> well, uh, this is what spoilers are all about, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. I'm spoiling it for myself. Right, okay. Um, so thank you, everyone, uh, for listening. It's the end of this series. Uh, we'll be back very soon with uh, with another series. We've already decided what they're going to be, so I don't know. I mean, you know, do send some suggestions in at the email address that you'll find at the end of the programme. Uh, which you know, if you know us at all, means that I don't think you should do, but the rest of the team think you should. <laughs> um, thank you to Johnny. Brilliant production uh, over the series as well. I mean, this is uh, this is why we are the British Podcast Award-nominated spoiler, very proudly so as well. Uh, thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Andy. And we'll leave you with the dreamlike Andy Goulding. I sometimes wonder if I am a terribly absurd man to gaze out office windows and imagine I'm a bird man with hawk-like grace and sturdy wings to carry me away from all the heavy pressures of the average working day. While buried under paperwork, I'm often moved to ponder if there's responsibility out in the wild blue yonder, and if I would be happier aloft on feathered wings, casting off the shackles of materialistic things. Perhaps you can't escape the world by soaring to great heights, as freedom comes with feathers, so, I'm sure, do parasites. And in this underrated world, there's too much that I cherish, to languish in unburdened flight until the day I perish. Our fleeting time on earth is surely something we should treasure. It's just a shame that time is such a volatile measure. The sand of time's velocity is relative to pleasure. It trickles through our working hours and cascades through our leisure. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support us, you can do so via our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Or you can help us by simply telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show, or writing a nice review on iTunes. Whatever happened to once new can we really live without each other if you'd like to get in touch with us you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk find us on twitter or facebook or go to our website spoilerpodcast.co.uk spoiler is produced by johnny hoare and is a joe schmo production the show was recorded at the studios of siren fm in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of lincoln This place is horrible. Smells like balls.